Well, good morning. I want to continue today to explore some of the themes we touched on last week during our time together, namely the idea of our limitations and insufficiencies, which of course is a very appropriate conversation at the beginning of Lent. So today is the first Sunday in Lent, but we actually started the season this past Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. We sang a song reminding ourselves that we are dust today. Ash Wednesday, we begin the arduous journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, walking with him figuratively toward his cross. And we begin that process with the imposition of ash, a reminder of our frailty, a reminder of our mortality that we are dust and to dust we will return. So our limitations, that, that is a central theme during this season. Last week, we concluded our time together by singing that wonderful old hymn, Abide With Me. Abide With Me. There's so many incredible lines in that song. We, we could spend hours meditating on them today, but Last week, as we were singing together, the line that really struck me was this, help of the helpless, abide with me, help of the helpless. This is the crux of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as opposed to the notion that is maybe popularly conflated with the gospel of Christ. Maybe we would call it the gospel of Benjamin Franklin, that God helps those who help themselves. The, the gospel of Jesus says, no, it is a help for the helpless. I don't know about you, but I continually need this reminder. As somebody who was always striving throughout my life to be a responsible person, even during my teenage years, those quintessential years of irresponsibility, I was striving to be a responsible person. And so I have to plant myself again and again in this truth that it is help for the helpless. Our girls love listening to and singing an old MXPX song that I listened to in high school. Um, which has the predictably juvenile lyrics that you would expect only from pop punk rock. Um, but the, the chorus goes like this. Responsibility, what's that? So, some of you know the song. Maybe we could sing it for a special. <laughs> Kevin, can I use your guitar? Do you have a flying V in the office? <laughs> Responsibility, not quite yet. I don't want to think about it we'd be better off without it. Which, it's a bit terrifying hearing my six-year-old sing that. <laughs> but I think as a teenager, I liked that song because that's as close as I would let myself get to being irresponsible, was singing those lyrics. So I would sort of live vicariously through other irresponsible teens and think that I was doing something cool. And, and to be honest, I, I am a proponent for responsible living. I think we should be striving to uh, carry ourselves wisely. But what I have to remind myself of is that it is not my responsible living 
that secures for me life. So we're journeying through this season with Jesus. But in many ways, it is also a journey inward, a journey with ourselves. Um, We see that in many of the practices that are commonly taken up during this 40-day season that prepares us for the celebration of the resurrection. You know, many will incorporate a practice like fasting, not to drop a few pounds, not, not to twist God's arm by proving how serious we are through intense self-mortification, but a practice like fasting as an expression of our trust. You know, we sing that in the prayer that Jesus taught us, give us our daily bread. As I experience hunger, I'm reminded of my need for food, which nourishes my body, but it also takes my mind to the fact that I am dependent on God's sustaining hand in all areas of my life. This is a season of repentance where we look our sinfulness square in the face. So it is a rather somber, maybe even dark season associated with some very serious practices, of course, leading us to the most somber of events, the crucifixion. But we always keep in mind, even during this season, that we are moving towards new life. New life is the goal that we're walking towards through this season. In fact, the word Lent itself comes from an old English word that means spring or, or the spring season. It takes our minds to new life. I, I love the, the random fact that as residents of the northern hemisphere, this season sort of coincides with what is taking place outside with the changing of the seasons. Just as during Advent, as we walk through that season, it's getting darker and darker and darker. During Lent, as we head towards the crucifixion and resurrection each day, each week, it is getting brighter and brighter. And so during this season, we hold on to the fact that we're moving toward the hope of the resurrection. But we first walk through the heaviness. So that's what we begin to do today. Our text from the epistles today comes from Romans chapter 10, but before we get to the passage itself, a bit of context is appropriate. The the thrust of Paul's argument since the beginning of this letter, if, if we whittle it down, it's, look, all of us, all of humanity, you, me, all of us, we are in rough shape because of sin. Sin affects everybody personally at every level of our being. It affects everything societally and systemically. We are all guilty and in need of rescue. We need to be saved. But what Paul, the the devastating news that Paul brings up throughout the letter of Romans. And we see this as the story of God's people progresses. And as we read the story told in our scriptures, we discover that nothing we could do could provide or really even contribute to that rescue that we are in need of. So Maybe we would think of the law, which is what today's text takes our mind to. The law of Moses, while serving an important role for God's people, it wasn't ever what would bring salvation to them. 
adhering to the law was, was a good thing. It showed God's people how to get along in this world, but following or adhering to the over 600 specific commandments in the law always proved to be an impossibility. The more the people of God tried, the more they failed, and the more it was revealed that it was not in their power to be righteous enough to do anything to fix the problem they faced. And this is actually a part of the purpose of the law. In addition to helping God's people get along in this world, in a paradoxical way, it also showed that the law, the Torah, couldn't ultimately save humanity from the curse of sin and death. Tim Mackey uses a, a helpful analogy, saying that the law sort of functioned like a magnifying glass, focusing in the problem of the human condition into one place, into the people of God. It revealed that we are helpless, that we need help for the helpless because we have nothing we can do to fix the problem, which opens the door then for God to reveal himself as the solution to that problem, to enter the problem, to suffer alongside of and for humanity and bring resolution. So with that in mind, we begin reading Romans chapter 10 in verse 1, where Paul says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, speaking of Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit themselves to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We'll, we'll pause here before we pick it up in verse 5 because I think it's important for us to remember who Paul is. He's not just pointing the finger saying, well, these ignorant people, they, they just don't get it. Remember, th this is who he is. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, he says, look, I'm as Israelite as they come. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. When it comes to adhering to the law of Moses, I was a Pharisee. I had the ethnic pedigree. I had the spiritual pedigree. But what I discovered is that none of that did anything to help my situation. I was hopeless. And all of those accolades or achievements that I had reached served only to show how hopeless and helpless I actually was. But when I was hopeless and helpless, when I discovered how unrighteous I was at my core, God sent his righteous one to do what I couldn't do. God sent the new Adam, Jesus Christ, to accomplish what I was incapable of. So Paul says Christ is the end of the law. That's what he says here in Romans chapter 10. But not as though Christ comes onto the scene and, and just shows how ridiculous that was and how primitive it was and how we need to progress beyond that. The word end here in verse 4 is telos, which 
can be translated as the end, as in termination of something, but it can also be understood as the, the goal or, or the consummation. So maybe we would understand Christ as the end of the law in that he is what the law was working towards. He is the consummation of all of that. So where we were incapable of being righteous enough by adhering to the law, the law is now written on our hearts. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. So as we are united with Christ, we receive the righteousness of God. Not because of our achievements, but because of what Christ has done. So we continue in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the idea of righteousness is clearly central to to what Paul is talking about here, the righteousness of God. But what is the righteousness of God? Is it just an objective state of holiness where where God is morally superior and and morally perfect and that's how we understand the righteousness of God? I certainly think that is true and I think that the righteousness of God certainly includes that Fleming Rutledge helpfully, I think, notes that the biblical concept of the righteousness of God is much bigger than just that objective state of perfection or holiness. First of all, the righteousness of God is a, is a person. Righteousness of, of God is the person of Jesus Christ. But she goes on to say this, in speaking of the righteousness of God, it is also the action of God in making conditions and relationships right. Righteousness has the force of a verb rather than a noun. It is not a static quality, but a continual going out in power to affect what it requires. So it's not just that God is righteous, but God does righteousness. God's righteousness is his power that is at work to make right everything that had gone wrong. It is God's rectification, a fixing of all that is wrong, which I think is a really helpful way of us understanding or thinking about the mystery of the cross. God is rectifying. 
So salvation could no longer, as we, we think about the history of the people of God, salvation could no longer really be understood as a collaborative effort where if we do our part correctly, and if we adhere to all of these stipulations, if we don't miss the mark at all, then God is going to be compelled to hold up his end of the bargain as long as I can maintain my righteousness. But what does Paul say? That, that was a futile endeavor from the beginning because we could never maintain righteousness. We see that in the people of Israel. Their repeated failure the rebellion of God's people, which led them into exile, that it turned it all upside down. We're left with the, the question, well, what is God's disposition to us now? Now that we're in exile, is God still for us or is he now against us? Because exile certainly feels like a curse. So those prior assumptions were, were being dismantled, and it's against that backdrop that Christ enters the scene, and through his life, death, and resurrection becomes the righteousness of God, becomes for us what we were incapable of being or doing. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The announcement of God in Jesus Christ that, that we think about even as we move toward his death is that salvation our help, our rescue is coming not from ourselves as though it depended on us. It is coming from somewhere else. That is good news for us. Because if it depended upon us, we would continue to move in that state of hopelessness. But our righteousness, our salvation, our ability to make things right, our justice which, by the word, is the same Hebrew group, uh, word group, justice and righteousness. The, the two cannot really be separated from one another. But our justice, our righteousness, our efforts at fixing the situation were incomplete at best. We were always in need of something, or more precisely, someone from outside to step into our mess to do what we were incapable of doing, both personally for us, but also societally for, for the mess that we have made of things. And we believe that this is what Jesus is doing in his death and resurrection. He is rectifying. He's fixing. He's bringing the solution and restoring all that had been broken. So one thing I think we are reminded of from a text like this in Romans 10 is that the Christian faith cannot be reduced to a simple moral to-do list, that we put a check mark by each of these items in the list when we achieve them. It also can't be reduced to just a collection of all of the right answers and all of the right opinions about the most serious issues of faith. No, Paul says, how are we saved? Quite simply, we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, which actually 
involves how we carry ourselves, how, how we live, which we'll explore in more detail next week as we continue the conversation. But we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts, the core of who we are, everything about us, we believe that God has raised him from the dead, and that is the path to salvation. It's not about marking these items off of a moral to-do list. It's not about having all of the right answers. We do believe that there is truth, and, and I think we should seek that and be serious in our pursuit of truth. But as, as Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you remember that story where Thomas is expressing some of his confusion, saying to Jesus, well, we don't even know where you're going, so, so how can we follow you? How can we reach Father, and Jesus says, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So our pursuit begins and ends with the person of Jesus Christ. We confess that he is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. I've shared this before, but I... I I think it's a helpful reframing for us to think about. Brian Zond has said, d described the Christian faith in this way, saying that the Christian faith is a confession, not an explanation. So we think of Paul's words in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's a confession, Jesus is Lord. So he said the, the Christian faith is a confession, not an explanation. He went on to say, we will explain what we can, but we will always confess more than we can explain. We confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. It's never about what we can do or achieve, the accolades that we can receive. And to be fair, a belief that it is our personal righteousness that leads to salvation, however we want to understand salvation, that a belief that it is our righteousness that fixes everything that's wrong in this world, that it's not only a Christian or even a spiritual notion. I think there are many who don't follow Jesus, maybe who don't even claim to be spiritual in a vague sense, who, who live as though, carry as though, it is their righteous living that will fix everything that's wrong in the world. It seems to be a fairly common belief. So whether it's religiously motivated or not, there is a common tendency to use that standard of right and wrong. Whatever standard we have d decided to attach ourselves to, we use that standard of right and wrong as an attempt to compare and judge ourselves and rank ourselves hopefully higher than others. And I think one of the things that we can deduce from, from Paul's argument here is that anytime we attempt to inflate our own merits and highlight the deficiencies of another, we can be sure that we have succumbed to the age-old temptation to look to our own righteousness as the thing that is going to fix us and the world. So for us today, as we think about St. Paul's words, this description of the gospel, that it is help from somewhere else for, for you and I who are helpless and hopeless, 
It is help for us. And the only thing we are left to do is confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead. So as we begin this Lenten season, by coming to terms with our insufficiencies and, and our lack of righteousness, coming to terms with our sin and our failure, as we come to terms with that in repentance, maybe through fasting or whatever discipline or practice you are taking up during this season, the point in all of those practices that we participate in, it's not to go and be better people. Hopefully, we will go and be better people. Uh, we'll, we'll explore that and the connection of that idea to this concept next week. But the point of those practices is not to help yourself so that, well, God may just be convinced to stoop down and help you to do righteousness on your own. No, the gospel of Jesus what we are trusting in is that God is the righteousness, both an objective state but also the activity of fixing. God is the righteousness that we can't be. God is the righteousness doing the righteousness that we could never progress far enough to complete. Robert Farrar Capon has said that grace is the most impractical thing in the world. Grace is the most impractical thing in the world, and that's precisely why it's good news. That is why it saves us, because it isn't about what we can do or what we can contribute. It doesn't depend upon us nailing down all of the precise, correct thoughts and beliefs about God, though there are certainly things that we do believe about God and his creation, but our salvation doesn't depend upon our ability to be good enough or to think rightly enough. That is an impossibility when we are dealing with God's standard instead of our own. Again, it's not as though living rightly, becoming like, living like Jesus, that that's unimportant or optional. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, that begins to change who we are and how we carry ourselves in the world, which we'll talk about next week. But we'll stop here for today. Pick this conversation up next week. And Steve, if you want to join me and Kevin, as we approach the table of our Lord this morning, my simple encouragement to you, what I, the, the call to you, the call to me, is simply this, to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be reminded today of the good news that is the righteousness of God, that your salvation does not depend upon your righteousness, but that of Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness of God who is acting in his life, death, and resurrection to rectify. To make right everything that has gone wrong. It is his righteousness, not our own, that we celebrate this morning. So as we come to the table today, we confess that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our hearts at the core of who we are. We believe with our entire being that God raised him from the dead. 
Would you stand this morning? I invite you to receive Christ this morning, the righteousness of God. I'll pray by way of invitation. You can make two lines down these two center aisles. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own. Say a prayer and then I'll meet you today at the table of our Lord. Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?